So today's passage is an, is an interesting passage because it talks about the promises of God, the promises of God. Last week, we touched briefly on the promises of God, that God gives us these great and faithful promises that we can hold on to. But we're going to see today again that the promises of God are oftentimes connected to the purposes of God. And so for my goal for us this morning is that, one, we would walk away trusting God more today. We would walk away today trusting God more today. And two, that we would walk away trusting God as we step out in faith a little bit more today. I, one of the things that has really excited me is knowing that when, when God talked to Peter and told him to come out of the boat, and he, Peter walked on water. Do anyone remember that story where, Peter, where Jesus walks on water and he calls Peter to come out on, on the water with him? One of the things that I really wrestled with is Peter was never able to walk on water before nor after that again. And if I tried that, I would drown. I can swim. So I know what you were thinking, right? Um, anyway, it's a racial joke. Y'all relax. We do this every Sunday. We do this every week. The reality is, so that, that doesn't apply, but the reality is in that moment when God says, Peter, come out of the water, Peter can walk on water. So what God says about your life and my life, when God says it, it all of a sudden, if it was never before possible, becomes possible. And that's my goal for us today is to walk away with that trust and confidence, not that we can do what Peter did, but that we can do exactly what God calls us to do and know that God is trustworthy. Can we read verses 1 through 17 silently as I read aloud? Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. After this, he, talking about Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come home from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, and Paul came to them. And since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to the preaching of the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. He stayed there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. While Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews had made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. As Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or of a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you, Jews. But if these are questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of such things. So he drove them from the tribunal, and they all see Sothenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But none of these things mattered to Galileo. Now, if this is your first time looking at this passage, you may be wondering, how did he get promises out of that passage? I promise you we are going to get there, but we need a little bit of history. I introduced a framework a few weeks ago about this reoccurring rhythm of Paul when he's in a new city. 
Paul is a very predictable person because he's a very single-minded and focused person. So every city he goes into, he has a predictable rhythm. The first thing he does is he goes to the Jews. He goes to the, the synagogues or the places of prayer where Jews are going to be gathered, and he preaches there. Now, you would think that after all this time, Paul would have learned his lesson. Because best case scenario, Paul actually preaches the gospel. People hear him, and then he is stoned or jailed or beaten or his life is threatened or he's run out of the city. And this is just what's happened to him so far. So this man has a hard-headedness, a stubbornness that, no, I'm going to proclaim the gospel. And that is exactly what he does. He comes and proclaims the gospel first by kind of doing it bivocational is what kind of language we would use. He's kind of being a, a tent maker during the week and then on the weekends preaching the gospel and then when Paul, when Silas and Timothy come to join him, they come bringing a gift from our old girl Lydia a few weeks ago when Lydia had a, was converted and she was a very rich and wealthy person and so she helped fund the mission. So this gift is from the Philippian church where Lydia is and that allows Paul to go full time. And you see, it doesn't really matter to Paul because Paul is, I am going to preach the gospel no matter what. This is a Christian zeal. There's a man by the name of Bishop J.C. Ryle. He was an Anglican. And he wrote up a little book called Practical Religion, um, which is a, is a really great book. And he talks about Christian zeal. And for me, this, this sums up Paul and hopefully what sums up what I want to be true of my life. So I'm going to read this quote from him. It's a longer quote, but I want you to, it'll be on the screen so you can follow along. He says, a zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It is not enough to say that he is earnest hearty, uncompromising, through-going, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. No, he only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor, whether he gets shame, for all this to a zealous man, he cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If he is consumed in the very burning, he cares not for it. He is content. He feels that like a lamp he is made to burn, and if consumed in burning, he has done but the work which God had appointed to him. This is what I mean when I speak of zeal in religion. When I read that for the first time, I was like, man, I want that to be true of my life. Because it's true of Paul's life, because everywhere he goes, he knows that if he preaches the gospel, jail, imprisonment, beating, suffering is ahead of him, yet he can't help but do this one thing. He can't help but do the thing that God put on his heart to do, no matter what happens to him. It's about God's glory and the advancement of the kingdom of God. And that, to me, about being a man of one thing is true of Paul, but hopefully, it's kind of a, a side note here, hopefully it's true of us. Hope we're growing where only one thing matters. If I could die, if I could give my life for one thing, it wouldn't be for myself. It wouldn't be for stuff. It wouldn't be for retirement. It would be for God's glory. Oftentimes in conversations, people say, man, if I had more time, then I could pray, I could read, I could serve more. If I had more money, I could be more generous. If I, you know, once I graduate college, then I'll be able to really serve God. You know, there seems to be a perpetual looking forward to better circumstances before obedience becomes an option. 
a perpetual looking forward to better circumstances before obedience becomes an option. If we're honest, we all are there. We're all there. We're just like, man, if I just had a little bit more fill in the blank, then God, I could. For some people, it's, it's, it's a fear of maybe I don't know enough of the Bible and maybe I don't, I don't feel like I'm smart enough than the people around me. God, if I just had a little more information, maybe I would then be qualified to do your will. But you see, people who are devoted to God's kingdom, people who are focused on the one thing, they don't even consider their weaknesses. All they consider is God and what he said and what their purpose is. And so Paul was a man who was focused. That's why he's so predictable, because he is a man who is devoted to the one thing, the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ to those who don't believe. And so he does that. And he does it to great effect. Look at verse 8 again in chapter 18. See what happens. The leader of the synagogue comes to faith. Now, that's a big deal for Paul. Paul was a man who loved his people. Paul was a Jew, and he had a a heart and a burden for the Jews. And maybe you have your people back home that you have a heart and burden for maybe the people you went to high school with or college with. In the same similar way, Paul has a burden for the Jewish people. Because like you have the scriptures, you have the promises, and yet you've rejected Jesus. And all of a sudden, through Paul's faithfulness and focus, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and his family and many other Jews come to faith. And here's how I know why that's a big deal, church. If you, he is in the city of Corinth, which if you know, maybe that sounds familiar, the book of First and Second Corinthians. That letter was written to the same people that he is among right now. And actually, Paul, in that letter to First Corinthians, he actually references Crispus. It'll be on the screen, 1 Corinthians 1.14, Paul talking about his ministry there. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, or Gaius. So Paul was talking about divisions in the church, and oh, I was baptized by Paul, I was baptized by this guy. And Paul says, hey man, God didn't send me to baptize people, but I made an exception for Crispus. Why? Because that was, that was Paul's big win. Not just the Jews came to no faith, but the leader of the Jews came to no faith. And so, Paul, this was a little different because usually after proclamation comes persecution. But up to this point, no persecution has happened. As a matter of fact, he's going to stay there for a year and a half, faithfully doing ministry. Look again at verses 8 and 9 of verses 18. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord all along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. Now, verses 9 and 10 from each church form the central message of this passage. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you. No one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. Verse 11. And he stayed there a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. Now, pause here for a second. What's happening here, church? He led the leader of the Jews to faith because of his faithfulness. Because remember, he's about one thing. And so no matter where I go, no matter if I have money or if I don't, no matter if I have to, I have to work during the week and preach on the weekends, no matter what my circumstances are, Paul was a man about one thing. And so he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the fruit of that is people coming to know faith. And then he stayed there for a year and a half. Now, you may not know much about Paul, but this is the longest he stayed anywhere. Paul, I'm not saying Paul was flaky or flighty, right? But he, was, he had a mission to go to where the gospel wasn't. And so he was the, the pioneer. Anyone know somebody that always likes new stuff? 
You know, they just always got to just, you know, let's just change the paint. Let's just change the furniture. Let's just, you know, we've had this. I've had this coat for six months. It's time for a new one, right? Like, Paul was that guy that always likes the new stuff because he was a frontier missionary. And so for him to stay in 18 months is unusual and will never happen again at any other place. That's how effective and profound the ministry was here in the city of Corinth. So it seems a little odd to me when I read this that God would give you a warning saying, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking. For me, it's like you're about to head out. You know, typically when it's raining like this, people will say, hey, man, be safe. That's a general, hey, I will. But then they say, hey, hope your wheel doesn't fall off. Now it's a little specific. Like, do you know something I don't know? Like, is there something you should tell me? Like, usually warnings oftentimes put fear in our minds, even if it wasn't already there. So it seems a little odd that Paul is, he's in the middle of this phenomenal ministry. The church is growing and people are coming to know faith and coming to know Jesus and the, and the fellowship is happening. I know this because of 1 Corinthians, which is the story of his time there, really. And then this warning from the, in the middle of the night, the Lord says to Paul, hey, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking and don't be silent. Now, there's two things that stood out to me really quickly. One is Jesus. Maybe in your Bibles, the letters are red. That means, though, this is Jesus talking. Once again, during Christmas time, we either think of Jesus as a baby or Jesus on the cross, and he's neither one of those. He was a child. He did come. He is God with us and among us. He was crucified on the cross to pay for the penalty of our sins, but he didn't stay on the cross, and he didn't stay in the manger. He is now ruling and reigning in heaven. Right now. Somebody should say amen right there. So this is the reincarnate, this is the incarnate Christ speaking to Paul, saying, don't be afraid. And the other thing I noticed is that Jesus spoke to Paul, but Paul heard. Now, if I'm, if I'm being completely honest, my prayer life is never more robust than when I need God to do something. When things are going great, that prayer time gets real short. You know, I'm good God. I'll do my little devotional. I'll check the little box at times. But when things are good, then, I, you know, God, I, I'm, I, don't really, I don't really need to hear from you. Things are going the way I want them to go. It's only when things don't go the way that I want them to go that I'm on my knees, I'm, I'm fasting, I'm reading the Bible all the time, I'm watching stuff. And that's our typical reaction, if we're honest, is in times of desperation, we need God. But what's profound to me is Paul, even though he's going through this phenomenal time of growth and success, he is listening to the voice of the Lord. He is listening for the voice of the Lord. Hey, God, he's spending time relationally. And I think it's not an accident that he said that Paul was spoken to in a night vision. I imagine Paul preaching and teaching from sun up to sun down. And then when sun went down, he didn't go Netflix and chill. He went home and got on his knees and opened up his word and got in prayer so that he could hear the voice of the Lord. And for me, that was a convicting but also encouraging reality that God wants to speak to us before things get bad, y'all. We don't always have to wait for disaster for God to speak. God is speaking to us even now, maybe even preparing our hearts for what's to come. Don't be afraid, but keep speaking. This is where I want to spend a little bit of time, church, because this is a complicated reality that we live in. There is a promise in these verses. I would actually wager there's two distinct promises in these two verses. One is an eternal hope. One is a promise of eternal hope. Another one is a present temporary promise. Eternal hope promises, those are what God commits to us because of who he is. Present promises, 
point to what God is doing now and are oftentimes temporary and conditional. Eternal hope is what God decrees that reflect who he is. Present promises reflect what God is doing now and oftentimes come with conditions and are oftentimes temporary. Let me give you some examples really quickly. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. That is a statement of eternal hope. That is who you are if you are in Jesus Christ. Christ has made you holy. Christ has made you blameless. You don't have to live in shame and fear and worry because this is what Jesus has done because it reflects who he is. You don't have to do anything to earn that because that is just who God is. That comes with the package when you say yes to Jesus. Amen? Now, let's look at the story of when Jesus raised Lazarus. There was a man named Lazarus who was a kind of a friend of Jesus's, um, and Lazarus died. And his sisters were really tight with Jesus, so they came to him in kind of a passive-aggressive way, said, well, no, Jesus, if you were here, you know, Lazarus wouldn't die, but I get it. You were busy. You had stuff going on. We trust you. John eleven twenty one says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And look at what Jesus said. This is a promise. Your brother will rise again. And Je- so Martha kind of does a Jesus juke with him. Like, yeah, I know in the resurrection of the dead, we're all going to rise again. And Jesus is like, no, I'm, I'm going to break. Matter of fact, let's go. And he walks to Lazarus' tomb, and this is what he says in verse 43 of the same chapter. He shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips with his face wrapped in cloth. Jesus said, unwrap him and let him go. A man who's been dead for four days raised back to life through the power of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the the interesting. Lazarus died again. We know this, right? Lazarus is not still alive. So when Jesus said, your brother will rise again, when he commanded him to come out of the grave, did he fail when Lazarus died an old man? Well, God, you said in your word that he will rise again, so maybe they're going to have a prayer meeting, throw some oil on it, light some candles, and we're going to pray for Lazarus to come back to life because Jesus said he will rise again. No, that was a present promise for this moment, what God was doing in this moment only. And oftentimes when we read scriptures, we're, if we're honest, church, we're holding on to the wrong promises. We're holding on to things that God said he was going to do for other people at other times. Instead of really realizing what he's promised us. Let me, let me break it down and make it clear. Look at verse 9 again. He starts with an eternal hope statement. Don't be afraid Keep on speaking. Why? You can say something. Why? For I'm with you. Acts chapter 18, verse 9. Go back there. I am with you. That is not a temporary arrangement. That's not a one-time deal. That's a reality of who he is. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. That's an eternal hope. And why that's good is an eternal promises, eternal statements are true for every Christian everywhere at all times. You, don't be afraid, for I am with you. Philip, don't be afraid, for I am with you. 
Then he says something else. Look at what he says. He says, for no one will harm you. Keep on speaking, for I'm with you. No one lay a hand on to hurt you because I have many people in this city. Now, this is a promise as well. Is this an eternal promise? No one will harm you. Why? We get spoiler alert. Paul dies too, y'all. Paul dies too. So this is a temp- this is a temporal promise for what God is going to do in this city right now. He is saying, Paul, be encouraged. No one's going to harm you. Why? How do I know this is a conditional promise? How do I know this is a present promise? It's because it comes with a condition. The condition is for I have many people in this city. He's saying, Paul, I got people for you to reach. That's why no one's going to harm you. I got a job for you to do. That's why no matter what happens, no matter what people may say, I'm going to protect you and preserve you because I've got a job for you to do. A few weeks ago, we quoted, it's an old adage that's out there that says, you are immortal until God is done with you. And that's true. We are immortal until God says we're done. And so all we've got to do is be obedient and trust him because we're not getting out of here until, we're, until God has got all he can out of our life. So we have a present promise. Let me give you a clear difference here. Present promise character, but they don't obligate God to do anything outside of that moment the promise was given. Present promises display God's character, but they don't obligate God to do anything outside of the moment that the promise was given. Let me give you an example. I'm going to start it. You finish it. If my people who are, will pray and, and turn from there, uh-huh, I got the handheld mic. It's like doing something with me right now. I got to, I'm like fighting the urge to, so it's a familiar. Y'all better, I'm always on the verge of getting there. Y'all better stop. Multi-ethnic church, y'all. You got to. Second Chronicles 7.14. It's a familiar passage. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. Then I will heal their land. I hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. That's a verse that's posted and plastered just about everywhere. Now, here's the question. Is that an eternal promise or is that a present promise? Does that apply to America today? No, it does not. Let me prove it to you. Most of the questions we have about the Bible can be solved by reading the Bible. So Corinthians, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is the verse that people quote. Just read the next two verses. Verses 15 and 16, God saying, my eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to prayer from this place. And I have now chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. This is a promise that God gave to Solomon at the dedication of the temple. He's talking about the temple in actual Jerusalem. The physical place that had just been built by the provision of God and the spirit of God. He's saying this place will be special. And if my people, the, the, the true native Israelites, will humble themselves and seek my face, I will hear from them because of this temple that they have built as an act of obedience. You see the difference? Now, if you've got the magnets and the bumper stickers and the birthday cards, like, don't throw them away. Because God, because temporary promises, present promises do convey God's heart. So what does this promise say to us? This says that God is willing to forgive even the most rebellious of sinners. 
that God's grace never runs out. There are truths in this scripture that we can hold on to, but we can't just declare it as a formula for America in 2018 because that's not where the promise was given. That's not where the promise was given. And the reality is there are verses that we have in our minds. There are things that we quote, not that they're bad, not that they're wrong. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying they may or may not apply to West Church. Because God's promises oftentimes comes with our obedience. Paul, no one's going to harm you. Why? Because I got something for you to do. Not just to keep you safe. Not just so that, for you, so that you could be more comfortable. I've got a work for you to do. So there's some promises that you're holding on to that you're wondering why God hasn't answered, why God hasn't come through. And you think God is the problem and God is just waiting on us and our obedience. Now, let me go back to the eternal hope that we can hold on to because the eternal promises, these are things that we don't have to do anything for because they just reflect who God is. And this to me is really the central meaning and the central thrust of this passage is fear. Look at the eternal promise again. Don't be afraid. Why? For I'm with you. Don't be afraid for I'm with you. Because it's an eternal promise, it doesn't just apply to Paul. It applies to you and you and anybody who is in Jesus Christ at any time. Because eternal promises apply to every Christian everywhere. Don't be afraid for I am with you. And this is where I want to get to, church. Fear. Fear is something that drives most of us, and we're not even aware of it. Most of our ambition is really fear of failure. Most of our service is really fear of man. Most of our financial stewardship is fear of being without. Most of what drives and motivates us is fear. That's why time and time again, the same thing with the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 41, the same thing with the prophet Jeremiah, the same thing time and time again, those who are called by God, you hear the same refrain time and time again, don't be afraid, fear not, don't be afraid, fear not. Why? Because God knows our hearts and it knows that at the bottom of our good deeds, at the bottom of our, of our actions, a lot of it what drives us is fear. Fear paralyzes us. It makes us doubt our identity. It makes us underestimate our gifts. It makes us reject relationships. Fear keeps us stuck when we should move, and it keeps us running when we should stay still. And here Jesus is saying to Paul, to you, and to I, to not be afraid, for I am here. And for me, if we just recognize what Pastor Jake said last week and was going to be the reoccurring theme of the scriptures, that we have a God who is near to us who is always speaking to us, who always wants to be with us. When we realize that we have God on our side, if he be for us, who can be against us? Church, if we grabbed hold of that truth, I promise you freedom is on the other side of that. If you grabbed hold of that truth that I don't have to operate out of fear because God is with me, Suffering may come and and trials may come, but I don't have to let it determine how I respond to this world because God is with me. And so Paul was commanded by God to not be afraid. And why? 
Because Paul, although he's experiencing some of the best years of his ministry right now in the city of Corinth, he, God knows that persecution is coming. Look at verse 12 of chapter 18. While Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, it's kind of like a local ruler or governor, says the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal, this judgment seat area. This man, they said, waiting to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, honestly, they're right. The Romans in that time, they would occupy different lands, and they would pretty much let anybody worship any god that they wanted to worship. But it had to be an official religion. It had to be signed off on. Because what they would oftentimes do is take various religions and intermix them together. It was a way of kind of crowd control. If we all had the same gods, people would be less likely to rebel. And so that's why there was kind of a polytheism in the day that was the dominant religious kind of foundation, was worshiping these many gods. And so at this time, Christianity was not an official or approved religion. And so the question against Paul is correct. He is breaking the law by preaching Jesus Christ. But remember the promise. And Paul does what anybody would have done. Verse 14. As Paul was about to open his mouth to do what? As Paul was about to open his mouth to defend himself, to, to plead his case, to, to state his reasons, to, to do all the things that we would naturally do. God used unsaved. God used the person who didn't even know him to defend him. It said, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you, Jews. That's a phenomenal phrase. But if these questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I judge of such things. So he drove them from the tribunal. It's actually funny because Galileo doesn't get it. At this time, they think Christianity is kind of like some sect of, 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 of Judaism. It's like they got the same God, the same thing. They just got different names for stuff. It's really the same thing. I, that's, that's your issue, not mine. Get out of here. And God used the ignorance of the local leader to actually accomplish and fulfill his own promises. <laughs> Which is funny because God will use who he will use to accomplish his purposes. God told Paul, don't be afraid. For I'm with you. I'm going to protect you. No one's going to harm you. And if I got to use this unsaved pagan ruler, I will. But trust me. And he protected Paul using the ignorance and the unbelief of Galileo. Because anybody who knows Jesus Christ knows that, no, it's, it's not the same. It's not just, we're not just disagreeing with our Jewish brothers and sisters about names and dates. and Like we have, we are worshiping two different gods because our God has a son named Jesus. And he used that ignorance to protect and preserve Paul's life. And so, the same formula that we see time and time again, a proclamation, persecution, promise, is fulfilled here. Paul shows up to a new city and proclaims that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that through him and through him only is there forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God. And the people respond negatively, to say the least, through violence and anger, persecution, And then time and time again, God's promise always shows up to save who he will save and to protect who he will protect. God kept his promise, church. God kept his promise to Paul. And because this promise is an eternal promise, God will keep this promise to you. So what I want you to do with this, if you're a believer, here's what I want you to do with this. I want you to take God at his word. I want you to take God at his word. Each one of you in this room has eternal promises given to God. 
Ephesians 1 and 2 is filled with them. If you don't know what God has already promised you, start there. But that even some of you have purposes and passions and longings and desires that you believe are from God, but fear has kept you stuck. Fear of inadequacy, fear of failure, fear of others. Fear has paralyzed you. When God says, what are you afraid of? I'm with you. I put that desire there. I put that gift there. I called you to do that thing. And if God calls us to do it, church, what are we afraid of? Don't let the devil win off of fear. He is with you, and he wants to free you. He wants to see you do the things he's called you to do. Because the reality is, Paul was immortal until he dies, and we are immortal until we die. But there's an option there to waste our lives instead of serving and giving away our lives to Jesus Christ. And just like Paul, he worked and preached the gospel. He preached the gospel. Like, I'm not talking about vocational ministry. I'm talking about what has God placed you right now that you can give back to him? Do you own a business? Are you a student? Are you a teacher? Are you a stay-at-home mom? What circumstances of life can you already right now walk in greater obedience to God without waiting for better circumstances, without waiting for more time or more money or more anything? Right now, God is calling you to step out into an act of obedience. Maybe he's calling you to spend more time with him. Maybe he's calling you to spend more time with his people. Maybe he's calling you to step out and share with an unbeliever that you know. Maybe you have conversations with. I don't know what that thing is, but I know God is with you. I know God is with you because he's promised that he will be, and his promises can be trusted. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, let me say this. We serve a living God. I'm not inviting you to believe in a religion. I'm not asking you to ascribe to a certain set of behaviors. I'm asking you to walk into a relationship with Jesus the Christ. He was born, he lived, he died, and he came back to life. And now sits at the throne of the Father with all power in his hands. And even so, still says, come. I know what you've done. I know who you are. I'm not asking you to be a different person. I'm asking you to come, die, and let me raise you to new life. But that's good news because you don't have to do that. The old preacher that used to say, God cleans his fish after he catches him. I've heard so many people say, man, if I get out, man, I'll come to God once I get some stuff straight. I'll come to God once I get my life. Don't do that. You've tried it. It's not going to work. Come to God and let him change you from the inside out. Pray with me, church.